Well, Israel's hymn book. I have another opportunity. I was here three weeks ago and here again today to, to unpack one of the great hymns out of Israel's hymn book, Psalm 80. So please turn to that psalm here this morning. As I was preparing to preach Psalm 80, I realized, oh my gosh, there's just, there's just so much here, much more than what I first realized at first glance. And uh, the psalmist is using pictures, metaphors, and uh, exclamatory words, and honest prayers to communicate, to get a point across. And that got me thinking. It got me thinking about how people learn differently. And I think, obviously, the Holy Spirit knows us and has created us that way. And so even all of the Psalms put together, there's so many different ways, so many different approaches. In a room this size, there's people in here that, are, that learn differently, right? You learn differently than I do. Some of us may learn alike. So I did a little bit of research and I discovered a few things that I want to share with you because actually, I think this will help you, those of you guys that are dads, I think this will help you actually to be better understood on this day that we celebrate you, that we celebrate fatherhood. So, so uh, children who have parents here especially, pay attention, all right, because you're, you're going to need to apply this to your dad. Uh, there are many different learning styles, but there's four major ones. In fact, there's even a, a term, VARK. V-A-R-K, which is used to describe the different learning styles. Visual, auditory, reading, and kinesthetic. So let me just unpack that a little bit, and I think it'll make sense to you, and it'll help us to better understand Psalm 80 as well. There's the visual learner, or you might call it the spatial learner. Someone who is partial to learning by seeing, by observing. Debbie and I have this conversation all the time. She goes, don't tell me about it, honey, just show me. She's very much a visual learner. Um, but people like to observe. They like to look at pictures, diagrams, maps. In, in the past, I've, I've used uh, the screen up here to occasionally show a map. For those of you that are doodling right now, I mean, I'm just like minutes into the message and you're already doodling, you are a visual learner, okay? So doodle on. I want to encourage you to doodle on, but doodle in relationship to the truth of God's word that you're about to hear. There are some of us who are auditory learners. We would rather listen than read. I know some guys like that. They'd rather listen to a sermon online than read a sermon online, right? We're verbal processors. I tend to be that way. In fact, first service, and I'm doing it again here, the second worship gathering, is I'm already processing even as I'm talking, as I'm hearing myself talk. Uh, we often use our voice to reinforce things that we're learning. In fact, it's hard to stay quiet for a long period of time. Well, for those of you that may be the auditory learners, then um, there may come a time when I might ask you to stand up and repeat after me. No, actually, I won't do that to you. But I may say, can I hear an amen? Very good. See, the auditory learners, just they're, they're now engaged with me. We're ready to go. All right. Then there are those, and I tend to be more this type, uh, the reading or the writing. These types of learners are drawn to reading articles and books. I'm a voracious reader. And then occasionally I'll write some things down in a journal as well. So there's either the reader or the writer. They kind of lump them together. And we love to look up words in, in, the, in the dictionary, <laughs> English or Hebrew or Greek dictionary. We just love to do that. We love to search things, uh, answers on the Internet, right, because we're, we're readers, and that's how we learn. And then finally, and we've already had an example of that this morning, there is the kinesthetic learner, the tactile learner. They learn through experiencing and doing. Sometimes they may need to get up and move about, 
right? I think David, King David was a, was a kinesthetic learner. I mean, he just, he had to get up. He had to dance before the Lord. He just couldn't, he just couldn't stand there and just listen to it and just read about it. He had to participate in it. We've heard clapping this morning, which is awesome. And that's part of kinesthetic learning, right? For the kinesthetic learner, also pacing, moving back and forth, will actually aid in the memorization of, of material, of, of knowledge. Just yesterday morning, there were 15 men that met down at the Austin's farm south of us here. And we had a, a time called Meet Jesus at the Farm. We spent an hour in the Word, and then we spent an hour together, invested an hour together sharing what we learned. But I, I had sent an email out to the men in our congregation just saying, hey, uh, bring your Bible, bring a journal, bring something to write with, bring your own coffee, and bring a chair. Well, half the guys didn't bring a chair. Now, I learned that most of those half, they just didn't read the email. But there were two or three that purposely did not bring a chair because they don't want to sit while they're learning. They want to walk. And I observed one of our brothers from this congregation literally walking through these rows of Christmas trees as he had his Bible open and he was reading through the passage of Scripture that we were all reading and meditating on. It was awesome. It was great. He is a kinesthetic learner. So the Psalms come at us from all different directions. And even this morning, I'll attempt to do that to a, to a degree. I want to add a fifth, though, and this is where the help for fathers comes in. I don't know what exactly to call it, except that I've learned that I also learn a lot by napping. There comes a time, especially on a Sunday afternoon, where uh, I've been in the Word, I've been, been hearing great preaching, or maybe I've had the opportunity to do some teaching, and then it's like, okay, I need to process this. How can I best do that? By taking a nap. So, again, for all of you that are fathers, I just want to encourage you today to process the information from this morning by taking a nap. All right? And for the rest of you, yeah, that's right. And for the rest of you, uh, wives and children, let, the, ga- let the, ga- the guy nap, right? Let the dad nap, all right? Amen. There we go. I, see, we're, al- we're already engaged. It's great. I love it. Well, three weeks ago when I stood here and preached out of Psalm 77, I did a little bit of background. And I want to go back and just kind of retill the soil just slightly and maybe even make a, a slight kind of course correction. Israel's hymn book, right? 150 Psalms. And three weeks ago, I said that 12 of them have been attributed to Asaph. And that's correct. You you can see it in the scripture. Asaph, we know, had been appointed as the choir director, the leader of worship music under King David, and then he also served under King Solomon. But we're going to discover this morning that this Psalm 80 is written long after the time when Asaph could still be alive. He'd have to be into his hundreds of years old in order to be writing this, and he wasn't. Last week's psalm, Pastor Eric preached on Psalm 79, was, it was written about a time even longer than that. And so how is that possible? How can we justify that? Well, it's important to note this, that Asaph had some children. In fact, the sons of Asaph are identified in Scripture in three different locations. In fact, in the book of Ezra, it says that Asaph had 128 sons. I don't think that Asaph personally fathered 128 sons, plus however many other daughters that went along with that. But the point is this, there was a group of progeny and followers of the 
sort of the worship style of Asaph called the sons of Asaph. Likely they were a guild, they were a group, they were a school even of skilled poets and singers, and they modeled their approach to worship music much as Asaph had done. This is one of those psalms. It's ascribed to Asaph, most likely written by one of the sons of Asaph. The chronology itself of Psalm 80 points to a a, a later time after when Asaph would have been alive. It points to a time when the northern ten tribes of Israel had broken away. And if you know a little bit of biblical history, you know that that occurred after uh, Solomon died. His son was unable to take over the reins of leadership and the, the united country of Israel, God's chosen people, splintered. Ten tribes kind of migrated to the north and two remained in the south. And this psalm is speaking of some terrible destruction that has occurred in the north. It's very similar to what Pastor Eric mentioned last week when he was preaching out of Psalm 79. Psalm 79 is referencing the destruction that came upon Jerusalem after the fact. I've been thinking, even between worship gatherings, I've been thinking about the rift between these ten tribes to the north and the two to the south. Once one chosen people, the rift was real. It turned into an ethnic, um, even kind of a cultural divide, even a different approach to worship between the north and the south. It was real. What's fascinating, as we'll see as we go through here, is that the psalmist, who's most likely in the south, is writing about his perspective of what has happened to his former countrymen who have now, he's been divided from, he's writing about them and about the pain and the turmoil that they're going through. And he's responding to that in a prayer to God. It's going to become much more clear as we go through this passage. So in the process, to, just to kind of further set the context, in this particular psalm, Psalm 80, we're going to hear a voice. And it's the voice of the psalmist, and he's speaking directly to God. And we get to sort of listen in on that. And he's pleading. Sometimes he's confused. He shows some doubt. At other times, he has a clear sense of history and, that, and really the need for God's judgment upon this northern kingdom. But he's not afraid to question God. He's not afraid to boldly come before God and ask authentic, honest questions. And just like the other psalms we've looked at already this summer, the psalms give us language Show us how we can approach God honestly, not cowering before him, but honestly and, and plead for him, but not necessarily in our words, but we can do it in the words of the song. So this will give us some good direction here this morning. Three weeks ago, I made this observation, and I want to make it again, because specifically today in Psalm 80, we're going to notice that the psalmist is expressing uh, his prayers, uh, his thoughts, his emotions to God. But in the process, as he does that, it begins to shape his thoughts, his emotions, and even his character before God. And you know what, brothers and sisters? That is, that's my prayer. That is my prayer that as we 
learn from this today and as we apply it to ourselves as well, that when we are honest in our prayers to God and we cry out to him as the psalmist here does, that we would be changed as well from the inside out. One other quick thing I want to mention that will set this within context, and that is in the very first verse, uh, just a few words in, is the word shepherd. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. That's significant because it connects Psalm 80 to at least the three previous psalms. These four psalms, 77, 78, 79, and 80, are not necessarily placed in chronological order here. But they are placed in sort of a thematic order. And the fact that shepherd is mentioned is very significant. And we're going to start with that uh, here this morning. But here's why I think it's significant. And it, it, it puts it into the broader context of these four psalms. Back in Psalm 77, the very last verse, verse 20, read this way. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. A reference clearly there to shepherding. And then in Psalm 78, Pastor Scott talked here about, in two different locations, verse 52, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And then at the end of Psalm 78, he also referenced, he chose David his servant. The psalmist says, David, King David got chosen by God and he was taken from his natural role as a shepherd and he was brought before God's people, and it says he was with an upright heart. He was called on to shepherd God's people and guide them with his skillful hand. So there's this wonderful imagery. And then just last week, in fact, the very last verse of Psalm 79, and we used it as our call to worship this morning, and that was intentional to, to make the connection. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. So there's a definite connection between these psalms, even though they're not written in any, any form of chronological order. Another thing I'd like to, to note here as we, before we actually get into kind of a verse-by-verse verse pass through this psalm, is that this, this psalm, Psalm 80, has a, a consistent, uh, very obvious theme, and it's obvious because it's been repeated. I read it to you already this morning, verses 3, 7, and 19. It's, it's voiced as a refrain within this song or psalm. Verse 3, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then again, verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Well, that Hebrew term that is defined as or translated as restore in the English Standard Version that most of us are using, that's a fairly common word. It's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. In fact, it's used four times here in this particular psalm. But here's what it means, and this is why it's so significant. It doesn't mean... God, would you just come and take care of things and make things the way they were? <laughs> Why do I say that? Because many of us want that to happen, right? We, we're back at church, it's great, it's awesome, but can't it just be like it was in 2019? I'd really like it to be that way. That's not, that's not what the word means. That's not what restore means. It's better translated as turn back. And within the context of Psalm 80, 
it's best translated as God make us turn back. You see that? That's going to become very important as we walk our way through here. So when you see the word restore, it really means, God, would you make us turn back to you? And if you haven't seen it already, it'll become very obvious. There's, there's a building crescendo on these three refrains. And it comes primarily through the additional terms that the psalmist uses to des- describe God. He, he starts, as we'll see in a minute, he starts with the creator God, and then he moves eventually to the, the name of the covenant God of Israel. And it leads to a conclusive call to action in verse 18. Now, what I just did just there is for the benefit of those of you that are like bottom line learners. It's like, Tim, just give me the bottom line. I don't want all this other fluff. No pictures. Just tell me the truth. I just did. Okay? So, I mean, technically, I guess you could get up and walk out and come back in when we start singing again. I really would rather you not do that. But uh, that, that is, that's the essence of what's happening here is that there's this theme, God turn us back, and it's, but it's going to lead to a conclusion, and the conclusion is going to be a call to action on our behalf. Well, here's my key idea for this psalm, Psalm 80. Pray that God will turn us back. Do you see how I'm defining that word? Pray that God will turn us back. As a shepherd leads a flock, like a master gardener tends a field, and as a deliverer who saves. Psalm 80 not only is grouped around those repetition of the, the, the refrain, but it's also kind of hung on three metaphors. It's as if the psalmist is saying, uh, I want to not only address the auditory learner, but I want to address the person who is the visual learner as well. And I want to give you some me- metaphors so that you can better understand this. So let's look at the first metaphor. Turn us back as a shepherd leads a flock. And this is found in the first seven verses. Verse 1 again. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Verse 1 is just packed with so much information, so much imagery. But the two main images here are shepherd, the tender care of a shepherd, But notice, it's coupled with this being enthroned upon the cherubim. That's a picture of the royal holiness of God. And I love the way the psalmist starts this way, because he's he's coupling for us. He's asking God to shine forth or to manifest himself, his character. And he's asking him to do it in such a way that we see his holy care. His holy tenderness. I don't know about you, but I don't normally think in, those, in terms of coupling those two together. Holiness and tenderness seem kind of separate from each other, but they're not at all. And that's the point that the psalmist is making here as he begins in verse 1. Verse 2, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail here except to say this is the verse that indicates that he's writing about the northern kingdom because Ephraim and Manasseh, who, by the way, were the two sons of Joseph. Okay, Joseph is mentioned in verse 1. He's leading Joseph like a flock. Specifically, his two sons were the ones who became leaders of of 
two of the 12 tribes. And these two particular tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, were the dominant tribes of the northern kingdom. So it's because of verse 2 that we know that he is writing about these neighbors to the north. I'm not going to say anything more about Benjamin today, but for those of you that are inclined to do a lot of biblical research and you really want to dig deep, just know that there's a lot behind the, the, why Benjamin is, is named there. I'm not going to take us there this morning. If we had a two-hour training session or a teaching session in the classroom, I would love to do that because it is oh so rich, but I'm afraid I'm going to lose too many people in the weeds. So we won't, we won't go there now, but just know just know, and you can read up on that if you want, there's some real significant reasons why Benjamin is named here as well. Even the meaning of his name, it kind of crops up later in the psalm. Then comes this first refrain. Restore us, or turn us back, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Does that remind you of anything? Do you remember when the pandemic started and we celebrated that first Resurrection Sunday, Easter of 2020? There was a song that became very popular called The Blessing. It was sung all around the world. It was sung a cappella in different places. It was really a, an amazing song based on the, what we call the, the blessing of Aaron, the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. To Asaph's original audience, when they first saw this psalm or heard it sung, they would have thought of that. We don't necessarily do that. But they would have thought of that. It would have rung true. It would have made sense. It's like, oh, he's talking about that, that blessing. Do you remember it? I'd encourage you to memorize it. For those of you that are not just parents but grandparents, I'd encourage you to share this blessing. I'm, I'm going to read it to us right now. And as I do, I'm going to click on my phone so I can see one of my grandsons right there as if I'm sharing it with him. I love, I love holding their faces and just looking in their eyes and saying these words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Asaph's audience would have understood that. It would have made sense. It would have, it would have connected. They're asking God to do the, do the same thing to them. God, turn us back. Turn us back to you. And as, as we turn back to you, let your face shine upon us, just like this blessing from Aaron, so that we might be saved. And I want you to notice, too, the, the power of this is that Asaph, the son of Asaph, is praying this prayer, is singing this song on behalf of his neighbors to the north, on behalf of this group of people that there's been this incredible divide, this ethnic divide as a result. But then comes an honest question. <laughs> and again, don't you just love the Psalms? Because it, it, it gives us freedom to, to be able to approach God in such an honest, um, emotional way. Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your, with your people's prayers? It's, using the analogy here of, of a shepherd, it's like, how, how long are you going to be angry with us? We're just your sheep. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know where we're going. We need you to guide us. Uh, to still waters, right? Psalm 24. Why, why are you still angry with us? And then he elaborates that 
elaborates on that in, uh, in verses 5 and 6. He says, look, instead of raining down manna from heaven to eat, the, the grain of heaven, which a psalm of Asaph had talked about in, in the previous psalm, Psalm 74, he says, you've, you've instead fed them with the bread of tears, literally tear-soaked bread. Instead of splitting rocks in the wilderness, as Psalm 77 uh, 15 says, and giving them drink abundantly from as the deep, you've given them tears to drink in full measure. And literally the term that he uses there is you've given them tears to drink by the thirds. It's as if we would say by the quart, drinking tears by the quart, except bigger, by the thirds. And then in verse 6, it's basically a paraphrase of Psalm 79.4, last week Eric talked about, we have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And verse 6 says the same thing. You've made us an object of contention, and our neighbors laugh among themselves. As a result of that comes the second refrain. He's like at the end of his emotions here, and now he responds, and he tweaks it slightly. Notice it says, restore us, O God of hosts. And then the rest is the same. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It's as if, if the term for God, which is used in verse 3 and again here in verse 7, it's the term Elohim. It's the, the term that speaks of the creator God, the God of the universe, the big God, right? The God of everything. It's, if that's not enough in verse 3, he, uh, he pulls in some reinforcements. You're not only the big God, the creator God, but you're the God of hosts. You're, you're the God of the angel armies. There's popular Christian songs about that, about we sing to the God of the angel armies. What he's calling upon here is, is that, God, would you, would you please turn us back? Would you restore us and turn us back as a shepherd would lead his flock and turn them back to him as well? You know, in, in one respect, we could stop right there. And if maybe I was doing a little short little Bible study, I might stop right there. But it gets even better. It gets greater. Because to build on this first metaphor of shepherding, he's now going to add a couple more. The next one comes in verses 8 through 15. He says, turn us back like a, this is my word, a master gardener who is tending a field. Just let your eyes drop down through those verses, beginning with verse 8. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and even the first part of 15. Look at the, look at the words of cultivation, the words of agriculture, the words of growth. Words like vine and planted and cleared the ground and took deep root. Uh, words like shade and branches and shoots and fruit and field and stock and planted. Turn us back, God. Turn us back like, like a master gardener would tend a field. Verses 8 and 9 read, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. This vine out of Egypt is a picture, and it pictures Israel, this chosen people of God, this this people that were brought together as a nation, it pictures them as a plant, as a vine that God himself has taken out of Egypt 
and transplanted in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And we know from the next couple verses, but we also know from history that they spread out. They became a dominant force during the times of David and Solomon. We note that the, uh, the, the boundaries of the nation reached from, look at verses 10 and 11, reached from the hill country to the south. The mountains were covered with its shade. To the cedars of Lebanon, to the north and to the northwest, the mighty cedars with its branches. And then verse 11, it sent its branches out to the sea, in referencing the Mediterranean Sea to the west, and its shoots to the river, referencing the river Euphrates to the east. This tremendous area of great proportions that they had grown as a result of what? David's leadership? Solomon's leadership? No. As a result of this master gardener tending to the soil, tending to the vine itself, Israel pictured there as a vine. But then here comes another question. In the midst of this wonderful metaphor, this question arises, why? Why then have you broken down its walls? Verses 12 and 13. So that all who pass along pluck its fruit. In fact, the boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Why? And that why question is just hanging there in the air. Well, Isaiah, who was a contemporary, I think, of this author of this son of Asaph, most likely writing at the same time, Isaiah really answers that question. In, in Isaiah chapter 5, you can look this up later on your own, but the prophet Isaiah says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. Why? Because God says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. But he looked for justice, and behold, he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 80 is now saying in verse 14, turn back. Turn again. In fact, it's fascinating. He uses the exact same term, but now he's applying it to God. Turn again. Turn back, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for this vine. This explains more fully what the psalmist is crying out for as he cries out for a restoration. He's asking God to intently look down and peer from heaven and, in fact, allow his, his face to shine upon them as God has regard for this vine that he had tenderly cared for, planted and cared for, and now has been, been uh, gone into disrepute. He says to, to have regard for this vine. That's where I get the idea of tending. It literally has the idea of, of that, of, of attending to something, to looking after, to care for, as you might do with your roses at home or your special vegetable garden or whatever, those of you that are gardeners. That's why I love the, uh, the metaphor, the imagery of, of God as a master gardener. And so he's asking God to turn us back, but turn us back as you would a garden, as you have cared for us in the past do that now. Notice the, the beginning of uh, verse 15. 
he says the stock, your Bible might say shoot or root, the stock that your right hand planted. Tend that. God, restore us, turn us back, and attend to that again. Not only as a shepherd, but also now as a master gardener. And then finally, and it, it gets really fascinating here because it's as if the psalmist is beginning to mix metaphors because out of the blue, the second half of verse 15, you'll notice it says, the verse begins with the stock that your right hand planted. And then all of a sudden he says, and for the son whom you made strong to yourself. Look at your Bible and notice the connections between verses 15 and 17. Uh, skip over verse 16 just for a second, but look at the connections. The stock that your right hand planted, verse 17 says, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Notice the word son is used in verse 15. The word son of man is used there. And then finally, you made strong for yourself was repeated in both of those passages. That's not by accident. And for those of you that are visual learners, um, I'm somewhat visual at times too. And so when I, when I diagram a, a passage like this, I end up drawing arrows and so forth and all over the place. And I'd, I'd encourage you to do that so you can begin to see connections because the, the writer of this song has those connections in his head and he's trying his best to communicate that in such a way that people understand. And what I believe he's doing here is I believe he's introducing this third metaphor, namely, God, turn us back. Turn us back as a deliverer who will save us. In other words, bring someone who will deliver us. Some commentators would, uh, would cite that the son or the son of man mentioned in verses 15 and 17 is a reference to Israel. Yeah, that's potentially there. But I think more, uh, a better way of looking at that is that he's, he's presuming that he is bringing a deliverer. He's bringing a king. I believe he's referencing King David. And because I'm standing on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, I'm believing that he's re referencing not just King David, the historical figure, but also the king who would come in the line of David, namely Jesus. It, it doesn't take a huge leap to go from these couple of verses and realize he's, he's talking about Messiah. He's talking about the person we call Jesus, the Messiah. He is, in fact, the shepherd. Doesn't he call himself that in the gospel according to John? I, I am the shepherd, right, he says. He even calls himself the vine. Jesus became that perfect example of what the plant that God had planted, the vine. The nation of Israel had, had failed in that regard, and they were judged accordingly. When Jesus comes, he says, you're, you're looking at the, at the real deal here. I am not only the shepherd, I am the vine. And then ultimately, we know that he is the Savior. He is the deliverer. And so the psalmist here is, is I believe, is, is calling back and saying, God, restore us. Turn us back. Bring this deliverer. Notice the climax. I mentioned that this conclusive climax in verse 18. Then we shall not turn back from you. Why? Because you give us life, and the cry is to give us life, and we will call upon your name. As I look at that verse, it, it's like, we will call upon your name. You'd expect to see that at the beginning of the psalm. That's normally kind of a, an introduction. We will call upon your name, and then the psalm goes on. But not in this case. In this case, 
the psalmist is making this strong argument for the need for salvation, the need for turning back, the need for, really, New Testament word, repentance. The need for realigning ourselves, changing the way we think, realigning ourselves back into relationship with God. And he's saying, we can't do this. I can't do this in my own strength, in my own power. But you can do that. So God, turn us back as a shepherd would. Turn us back as a master gardener would. Turn us back, ultimately, as the deliverer has and will. So this verse 19 comes to this this crescendo. And once again, the psalmist adds another word, another name for God. He now says, restore us, O Lord. That's the English word for Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. That's the name that was given uh, to, for God's people to recognize that he made an agreement with them, a unilateral covenant or agreement with them. We like to throw the term around here a little bit, the Hebrew word hesed, which speaks of covenant love, or the English Standard Version translates that as steadfast love. Others would say loving kindness. It's that special love that God has for his chosen people as a result of the agreement he made with them and them alone. And we stand in the, in the train of that as well. And so the psalmist is saying, now restore us, O Yahweh, Elohim, the creator God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Why, why is that important? Why is that significant? What, what's the point of this psalm? Well, again, this is a psalm writer who's writing about what you could conceive of as enemies. The tribes to the north, they were, they were divided. They were, again, there was a tremendous rift between them. They did not get along. They had different centers of worship. They had different approaches to the Torah. They had a different view on life, and they were, they were at each other's throats. They had once been a nation chosen by God, and now there's this great division. And the, the writer of Psalm 80 sees the destruction that has come, and instead of saying, well, you had it coming to you. No, he prays out on their behalf, but also on his behalf. I thought of that this week. Earlier, I saw an article that came across a news feed that I read. The article was entitled, A Tragedy in London. What's a Christian to do? And I thought, well, that's interesting. What, what went on in London? I, I, I must have missed it. And the author, who is a pastor in London, Ontario, Canada, told this story. A, um, there was a, just two weeks ago, there was a horrific act of violence in their community. And it occurred just three miles from his church. And he writes about walking from home to church and walking by the site of this, this horrific, uh, violent accident that occurred. Five members of the same family, ranging in age from 9 to 74 years old, were out on a Sunday evening just two weeks ago uh, for a walk. And a driver of a pickup truck intentionally hopped the curb and crashed and slammed right into them. Three generations, three generations of a Muslim Canadian family were killed. The father, the mother, a daughter, and a grandmother 
And the sole survivor is a nine-year-old boy named Fayez who remains hospitalized today with serious injuries. And now he's orphaned. And the 20-year-old driver of the truck has been charged with multiple felonies as a result. But, but here, here's the question. The question posed by the article and the question that caught my attention is, well, what's a Christian to do? What's our response to something like that? And this pastor made this point. He said, well, we certainly should lament. We should lament and grieve the pain of what has occurred. That's a Muslim family. We're Christians, but we should lament and grieve that. But then significantly, he says, we should repent. And I thought, wow, that's what the psalmist is calling us to here in Psalm 80. Listen to the words of uh, a prayer prayed just last Sunday by an elder in his church uh, who happens, this gentleman happens to lead their Arabic fellowship. In his prayer, he said this, Lord, we come with troubled hearts as we have all seen and heard about the horrific act of hate that happened toward the Pakistani family here in our city, in our neighborhood. It's so close that for me personally, this was a wake-up call, Father, to examine myself, my feelings, and motives toward those who are different from me in faith and culture. I come to you asking for forgiveness. Wow. I ask forgiveness for our prejudices, our lack of uh, caring for those of a different, who are different in faith or culture or color. I ask forgiveness for not sharing the gospel faithfully because a family of four was killed in an instant and they didn't know Jesus. That illustrates for me, I think, what the writer of Psalm 80 is trying to get across here. And not one time, not two times, but three times he's calling out to God, asking God to turn his people back, to collectively repent and turn back to God. Why? Because he's our shepherd and he will lead us as a flock. He's our gardener, master gardener, and he will tend to the vine that he has planted. And ultimately, he is our deliverer, right? He is our deliverer who alone can save us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 80. Thank you for, although written thousands of years ago, it still speaks loudly and clearly. And I thank you, Father, for the many different ways that this psalmist communicates the truth of our need to turn back to you. So, Lord, when we face times of trauma and confusion and doubt and fear, anger even, Lord, help us to turn back to you. Restore us, O oh God. Turn us back to you, O oh God. For the sake of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.